All right. Flip open your Bibles to Acts 20 with me. We are getting back to my series on Acts, which we will finish one day. Uh, it's been about four months since I preached in Acts, and it actually ties in pretty nicely that we're hitting Acts 20 because it's kind of a passage where Paul reflects on all that's come before and summarizes his ministry. It's one of the only long speeches we get from Paul directly to Christians, and where it's valuable for us and where I want us to pay attention is it shows us when Paul thinks about ministry and what successful ministry looks like, we should notice what Paul notices. So let's take a look at what he notices. We're going to look together. So we're in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time for the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count, account myself of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray together. Father, there are certain passages that need very little explanation. We thank you for the ministry of Paul to us. We ask that we would be reminded that your word is for all people in all times and all places, that it is a gift to us. May we accept it with open hands. And in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I, many of you know that I 
teach at a boarding school, the Stony Brook School. Uh, I've been there nine years. This is my ninth year, which is crazy to say. Over those nine years, I've been able to observe some patterns and different types of people who are drawn to boarding schools and how that goes. And I've noticed very broadly that there are kind of three categories of people who end up at a, at a boarding school. This is a little overly simplistic. It maybe lets the institution off the hook, but hang with me. Typically, you have, I think, on the one hand, you have like your 10-plus-year lifer-type boarding school people. Uh, and they're people for whom boarding school is really like what they want with their lives. They can't imagine doing anything else. They get into kind of a groove. Uh, when you first start teaching there, you look over at them, and you're like, how do you? You're just calm and collected. The small irritations, those extra duties you weren't expecting, the ER trips or the late-night calls to parents from the dorm, constantly being behind in grading, these things don't seem to phase the people very much, or they've learned to gripe about it in a way that they can sustain. <laughs> but so there's that. Then I've noticed that there's kind of the three to five year people, and they really love boarding school and the mission, but ultimately decide it isn't really for them. And this isn't a failure on their part or anything. There's no judgment at all for that. Um, but they just, as they come in, they realize I could do this for a short stint, but it is really a hard haul, and I, I don't know if I can do this for a long stretch of time. But finally, uh, you land on people who just last one year. And there are several reasons for this. And you know, Stony Brook's not perfect, and sometimes that's on us. But a lot of times, I think some people can come into a boarding school environment uh, overwhelmed by the kind of romantic ideals of boarding school. You know, you are with the students all the time. You became this huge bond. And the romanticism of what you're doing is so powerful that it kind of overwhelms at the beginning. They haven't counted the cost of long duty nights and dorm weekends and coaching and teaching four sections and so forth and so on. Well, the reality, though, is, and what you try to warn people as they step into boarding school, is that the big, sweeping, idealistic things are only true if the suffering parts are true as well. In other words, my best ministry opportunities with students actually come when I have a student in the dorm having a panic attack, or I have to drive a kid to the ER, or I sit with someone else as they're crying over a suspension. Those are not the parts that you advertise when you're coming in to teach, but they are frequently the places that you leave the most like, that was really hard, and I'm really glad I was there. That was really good. In other words, the suffering parts and the good parts are perfectly overlain with one another. You kind of can't have one without the other. But if you come in with false ideals and false expectations that it'll just be smooth sailing, and there won't be the ER visits, and there won't be the tough nights in the dorm, it leads to a kind of cynicism and maybe burnout. Well, I think the same is true with the church and with expectations of the church. And this is part of why I've wanted to go through Acts. If false ideals set up false expectations, then clear vision gives us correct expectations on life in the church. And I think it can be easy to think of the church's status quo as healthy and powerful and influential and triumphant. In our hearts, I think we want this to be true as well. And this desire maybe for the church to be big and powerful and influential and awesome causes us to maybe skip through some of the hard things in the scriptures. When Jesus heals people with leprosy, our experience is usually like, well, here's this person with leprosy I just met, but boom, they're healed. So great. And we don't see the years of suffering behind that led up to that passage. We don't see the days and weeks and months of being as an outcast, wrestling with depression. 
We like the stories of Pentecost when hundreds of people come to believe in Jesus, but we shy away from stories where Jesus says something hard and the audience splits. I am suspicious as well that as Americans, we're particularly bad at this. We've set up a lot of our society to not really think about suffering. We've seen so much less death and illness, so much less suffering than so many people throughout history. If you could pull up your family tree and go through and just look at the ages and how long people lived. We live in a unique time. We don't directly wrestle with as much suffering and death as our ancestors did. And so when the original audience would read about the experience of, say, the person with leprosy or the woman at the well, I suspect they had a cleaner line connecting themselves to that reality. I think we have a tendency to blow over it to get to the good stuff. For the modern person, suffering and difficulty is not an inevitable reality to be navigated or endured. It's an unacceptable problem to be solved. We have to be the first people in history who are so consistently surprised by suffering. I'm entitled to a painless life, we think, and anything less is unacceptable for commercials tell me so. Uh, Francis Bufford put it this way, and it's just a great quote here. You'd think if you based your knowledge of the human species exclusively on advertisements, that the normal condition of humanity was to be a good-looking single person between 20 and 35 with excellent muscle definition and or excellent figure and a large disposable income. Clearly there are exceptions, but the center of gravity of the human race, our default condition is to be young, buff, and available, right? Uh, and we laugh about it because we know it's true. You go to Target, you see the big pictures, and you're like, I can buy the shirt, and I'm not going to look like that guy. Uh, we laugh about it, but it does subtly communicate something to you consistently over and over and over, make you more likely to go, why am I not like the person on that commercial, right? Well, I think we can do the same thing with the early church. We can think back and go, oh, it's this noble, heroic time, and miracles are happening all the time, and it's just easy evangelism and all of this. But if we look at the early church and we really have eyes to see, if we don't just skip over the beatings and the exilings and the tauntings, we'll see that the parting words of Paul paint a really different picture of that experience, and it's one that we should take seriously. The scriptures have not lied to us about what life as the people of God is like. The scriptures put it front and center. And when doing that, the scriptures also redefine successful ministry. And you know what we find? Good ministry and suffering are off, often overlain. It's where the suffering happens that the good stuff happens too. So with Paul's take on his ministry, we get to see how does he view successful ministry? What does he think about as he's about to leave the Ephesians? When he looks back and he goes, did I do right? What, what was it? What was good? And what we see that I want to pull apart, just kind of two big things. We see that for him, the resting place of the church is processed-based ministry instead of results-based and a suffering instead of a painless ministry. So process-based instead of results-based, hang with me, and suffering instead of painless. I want to break these down, and some of these, it, it might immediately, you're going to give me a second to explain something. I think on the process-based especially, you might have some kickback, but hang with me. So right out of the gate, let's start with the process-based ministry. Paul's going to summarize his ministry, and how does he think about it? Does he mention the number of baptisms? Does he mention the number of conversions? Does he mention how many churches were planted? Or the biggest attendance he ever got? 
Does he discuss the miracles, which we know there were many? He doesn't discuss any of them. That should give us pause, I think. That when he looks back and says, this ministry was a job well done, he doesn't mention any of those things, which we are so quick to point to as proof that good things are going on. All he does is he talks about the process. Look in 18b, uh, like the second half of 18, just listen. You yourselves know, he's thinking about his ministry, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, obviously, there are other Jewish people there. He's referring to those that are against him. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Let me say this up front before we get into it. Is it wrong to celebrate baptisms, church planning, conversions? Absolutely not. You should celebrate it. You should pray for it. You should yearn for it with your whole heart. When people get baptized, you should cry a little bit. Get those tissues out. It's a meaningful, great, awesome thing that we should celebrate. But in the final calculation, when we are asking ourselves, are we doing good ministry? When we're before God and saying, are we doing the right thing? We, we look at something else. Paul hones in particularly on how he's going about this ministry, and he's focused on the fact that he's with the people he's serving. He preached the word faithfully. He endured suffering for their sake. And if we think about it, this is super consistent with how Paul talks through all the letters. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's just, go through the letters. That's how he talks about his ministries over and over and over again. When I was back in South Carolina, um, I'm from South Carolina, there was a pastor at the time who was kind of on the fast track to becoming a big celebrity he had churches planted all over the place. He was famous for saying really inflammatory things. He kind of uh, came up right as YouTube was becoming a thing, so it was easy to get clips and watch these things he was saying. I was really stunned at the time that people were following him because some of the things he was saying seemed so atrocious to me. And I remember seeing one clip in particular when he was talking to his congregation. and He was talking about why he didn't visit people in the hospital when they were sick. And he was trying to show how busy he was, how important his work was. And he said something to the effect of, people tell me, Pastor, why don't you visit me in the hospital? And you know what? If I visit you, you better be following me out in a body bag. And I just heard that statement and thought, how do, you get, how do you get to a place where from the pulpit you're saying that? Well, for that pastor, it was about him and his church's success and not his people. The only way you become a pastor who says that kind of thing is if your money ministry is about results, numbers, and all of this, and not about process, not about faithful proclamation and loving the people in front of you. The pastoral cult of personality goes like this. Look at the results the church gets. This is mainly because of the pastor. If we didn't have this pastor, we wouldn't get these results, and then you're off to the races. 
you claim that good ministry is only a ministry with explosive, tangible results, then you're going to feel a lot of pressure to create those explosive, tangible results. This pastor from South Carolina at one point had several different sites and church plants all over the state, but all of them piped in his own messages on Sunday. And the message was simple, the church succeeds because of me. But with Paul, he does not feel that way. He does not feel that way. He is leaving this group of people, and he feels confident that he's leaving them in good hands because he's leaving them in the Father's hands. And when he talks about his ministry, if we go back to 1 Corinthians, we find, listen, he says things like this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. In his mind, Paul's ministry is really simple. He was sent by a good master to proclaim the gospel. As he says it right in front of us, repentance towards God faith in Jesus, God can deal with the results. And when he leaves Ephesus, he doesn't say, listen, listen, yeah, I know, I'll send you letters, and why don't you just hang on, and I'll get those letters, and you can read those out, and it'll be like I'm preaching. No, he trusts the people he's leaving. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is, this is you guys. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whose church is it? It's Christ's church, bought with his blood, not Paul's, bought with his words. He sees that the church is the work of God and not the work of Paul. There's a simple lesson here, okay? Our ministries, both corporate and personal, should be focused on the process of what we're doing and not the results, because the results are God's business. This takes faith to do, right? This takes faith to do. If we have these explosive results and all this, you can say, well, clearly good things are, but it takes faith to proclaim the word day in, day out, to minister to people without seeing, turning, those kinds of things. That takes an actual faith. It takes faith to believe in the value of a simple life. Public people who are powerful, have followers, are reminded of how important they are every day, but the simple faithful life is often unseen. My wife and I have this thing that we've started doing. I don't know who started it. But one of those days when, like, the kid has peed on the floor and another kid won't stop asking questions and you're just trying to fold the laundry and it's taking you, like, four hours and you wonder, how did I, how do I ever accomplish anything? And there's that moment when there's frazzled and we will make eye contact and one of us will say to the struggling spouse, I see you. And it's just a way of saying... I understand what's happening to you right now. I know no one else sees you, but I see you, and this is crazy, <laughs> right? And that little, that little phrase is a great pick-me-up, you know? You just need, like, hey, I see you. You're like, thank you, because this is nuts. <laughs> I don't know how I make it to the end of the day. Well, there are many people in this room who do small and small and unseen things, and the truth is, God sees us. God sees you. That's his, I see you. God sees the faithful ministry. He sees it when you're in the trenches with your kid and just getting dinner on the table is a miracle and bedtime is a nightmare. He sees those things. God sees you. He sees the patient, faithful ministry to a neighbor who is just obstinate and never responds to you forever. He sees these things. 
He sees the faithful ministry. He sees it. And by the way, this has to move from the abstract to the felt for it to matter, right? This is what spiritual disciplines are about. We sit before the word and we hear, I see you. So Paul can live a life with a process-based ministry because he's seen by God. Listen to this in verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is a guy whose vision is completely locked in on God. That is the audience that matters to him because he feels totally seen by that God. Uh, so Murray has started playing Little League Baseball, which I'm pretty excited about and is hilarious. Um, and it's such a funny thing because, you know, he's eight, and what he wants are the results. He wants to know, like, the score. He figured out the other day that they're in kids' pitch, and kids just walk everybody. So he figured out, like, I don't have to swing. I can just get up there, and I'll get walked, and I'll be on base, like, the, all the time. Okay? <laughs> now, obviously, as his dad, who would like him to progress in skill, I, I applaud the Moneyball-esque strategy he has, <laughs> but wish that he would go up thinking more about the process, right? Lift the elbow, be ready, be ready to swing. I think baseball is funny in particular because you can hit the ball really hard, 110 miles per hour, right at a guy. And the at bat was great. The results weren't, but the at bat was great. And so I have this conversation with my son as we were coming back. He's like, why don't why don't they keep score? Who won? Yada, yada. I was like, well, probably not keeping score because nobody knows how to run from first to second. And that's more what they're concerned about right now, right? There's something about that mentality that I think we have to have as Christians is thinking about, like, I'm having a high quality at bat, right? Uh, I can't control where the ball goes or who it goes to. But before God, I'm going to go up and I'm going to proclaim the word. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to do these things. And that's what I can control and that's what I'm going to I'm going to do. And as we look at Paul, I think that's how Paul approaches it, too. I want to double back and just say it one more time. I am, of course, not saying to, to not pay attention when people are baptized, come to Christ, churches are planted. We should be deeply happy about that. What I mean is that I think when we stand before God, he's not going to go, well, here's a statistic sheet of your life. It's going to be focused on the process. Did you live your life before God, do ministry before the God who sees you? So the second thing. So I think this is a process-based ministry, not a results-based. The second thing is it's not painless. It's a suffering ministry. It's been hilarious reading Acts to me because I don't know why, but before when I had read this, I did just kind of skip by most of the suffering that happens to Paul. But he's just relentlessly in a bad situation and constantly getting beat and all these things. I don't know how it didn't stand out to me before. But Paul has a suffering ministry. And you may have some questions based on what I just said, uh, kind of like this. Well, if it's just proclamation, you just kind of go, you proclaim, that doesn't feel right either. And when I was in college, there was a group of fundamentalists, kind of of the Westboro Baptist ilk, who would come and visit campus once a year. And they would stand on a corner and technically proclaim the gospel in a vicious, attacking sort of way. And uh, they were deeply unpleasant to be around, and I tried to start a conversation with one of them and learned a lot of things. Okay, but from my perspective, they weren't very interested in converting people or loving people. They were just trying to proclaim and then leave. 
So you may hear and go, well, isn't that, how is Paul any different if that's all he's saying? Did I proclaim it? He proclaims the gospel, he gets persecuted just like that group. Well, the big difference is Paul loves the people he's trying to reach. He loves them. So he's not just going to say the hard thing and walk out and go, they cry when he walks away. And you notice as he points out, I served with all humility and with tears. He's crying over these people. He loves them very deeply. Process apart from love is just more nar narcissism. And process apart from love, it can protect you from suffering in a way. The, the fundamentalist group that would come through and proclaim, they don't know the suffering of really engaging with people's lives and watching them struggle, being heartbroken when they make bad decisions, because they don't have to know them. They just come say it and leave. If you don't love people, who cares if they accept the gospel or not? When the fundamentalist group kind of came to town, they would tell the same message in the same way as they did everywhere else. But if we follow Paul, he tells the gospel message in a way that's particular for the audience because he cares about the people in front of him. So I want you to notice a few things. Firstly, Paul's ministry to Ephesus has been really, really hard, and it's been hard because he loves them. He claims that he serves with humility and tears. There's all these plots to trap him. He preached in private and public places, even things that wouldn't have been popular to say. The time with Paul has not been easy, and it's only going to be harder. He leaves them with this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples from after them. He's like, it's been a fight. It's still going to be a fight. This is not the early church I tend to envision. This is an embattled church. And things are only going to get tougher after this moment. But this language is completely consistent with all the letters Paul sends. The church is in a battle constantly. So what do we do with this? Why does God, briefly, the problem of suffering solved in two minutes. Uh, why does God let his people go through tough things? So much of the New Testament is actually about this. Hey, if we're the people of God, why, why is it so hard? I've preached on it before, so I won't belabor it, but I have a simple answer. When we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God has this pattern of allowing people to get to the absolute worst place before delivering them. Abraham's moments away from killing Isaac before he stops him. The Israelites are standing between the Red Sea and the Egyptians, and the army's coming in before he saves him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get all the way into that fiery furnace. Why does God allow things to get so dire? For delivering his people. Well, somehow this process is actually good for us and good for his people. James puts it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, incomplete, lacking in nothing. This type of suffering is good because it pushes us towards deeper and more full dependence on God. It forces us to lose whatever backup plan we may have to protect ourselves. It forces us to depend on God, and that is the safest place you can possibly be. And God knows that and pushes us towards that place. You know, the last few years, I've talked about it at length up here, have been full of kind of public scandals from the pulpit nationally, full of big public renunciations of Christ from big figures. And there's been a lot of people writing about this. 
why are there so many leaders who it turns out are just clearly in it for themselves? And at the same time, it feels like anti-Christian sentiment is pretty high. It can be easy to go, this is not how it's supposed to be. Things are supposed to be easy. Remember back 30 years ago when it was actually to your credit to be a Christian? That's what it's supposed to be like. What's going on? Well, the message of the New Testament is practically screaming at this point. It's saying suffering for the gospel is what the church does. I've suspected that for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a lot of people who've walked away from the faith in the last few years, it might be the first time they've been asked to count the cost, as Jesus says. They became a Christian at a time when it was easy to be a Christian, but we're not told that being a Christian meant following Christ, who's the suffering servant. Maybe some of you weren't really told that either. Maybe the last few years have been really disorienting, and you find yourself asking new questions, like, whoa, what, what is this deal? When I became a Christian, it was a, it was a plus for me, and now a lot of people really don't like me because of that. If I have to make social and vocational sacrifices to follow Christ, am I, am I here for it? And some of you maybe even are just nervous, like, do I have the guts to be a Christian? <laughs> am I brave enough to be a Christian? I sympathize, big time. But I do want to say this. The question is not, do I have what it takes? The question is, can I trust the one who has what it takes? Don't ask, am I brave enough? Ask, is Christ sufficient in my weakness? Yes. Paul speaks of the pain of suffering, but he also speaks of finishing his course. For Paul, the suffering and the glorifying God are not opposing ideas. They're overlaying on top of each other. The good stuff and the hard stuff are intertwined. In a letter to Philippians, Paul puts it this way. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We'll wrap it up here. There's this famous story that some of you maybe heard written by Oscar Wilde called Dorian Gray. And the story goes like this. Dorian Gray is this young, ambitious man who only wants to live the good life, not unlike many people. However, where he's different in kind of a fantastic way is Dorian Gray has a painting deep in his house. And now to, to all eyes, Dorian Gray is this handsome, young, healthy guy. But his secret is that the painting shows his true self. So whereas he doesn't age, the painting does if he does evil things and would be weighed down by guilt and it would show up in his disposition, it doesn't show up in his, it shows up in the painting. If he does something evil or spends all night drinking and this kind of stuff and begins to get diseased, the painting looks diseased, he looks great. You get the idea. Functionally, I think the world's answer, if we have that painting at home, it's to hide the painting at all costs. Put the good picture up on social media, do all the work so you look great hide the painting. But Christians are those for whom Christ has seen the painting and loves us all the same. This loving gaze allows us to endure and to press on even through difficulty. So Paul is someone whose ministry is driven by a focus on the process, defined by suffering, born out of love, 
for his neighbor. But here's my final question. I'm going to end reading you this. If he knows that the wolves are coming, how can he leave the Ephesians? How can he resist the urge to just stay if he knows that people are coming to try to undo all the work that has been done while he was there? I suspect he can leave because he's read Ezekiel 34. And this is a little longer. It's worth hearing, and I want you to listen to it. In it, God is going to address how he feels about those wolves rising up and then what he's going to do for the people who've been scattered by those wolves. So let's just listen to it. I know it's echoing in Paul's head as he's leaving the Ephesians. Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, oh, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against those shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. And hear this, this is just good stuff. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their gazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel and I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down declares the Lord I will seek the lost I will bring back the strayed I will bind up the injured I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy I will feed them in justice Paul can leave the Ephesians because that's the God he knows he's not leaving them to the wolves he's leaving them in the hand of a good God who himself will be their shepherd, and that's our God too. And because of that, we can trust him with our simple, process-driven, suffering, but ultimately triumphant ministries. Let's pray together. Father, it is such an honor to be known by you, and we hit passages like this, and we're in awe of who you are and all you've done for us. We're in awe that you were the one who 
is clearly heartbroken when your sheep are lost, wounded, injured, and it consumes you when the shepherds don't serve the sheep. Father, thank you that our trust is not in princes or kings or priests or pastors, but that you are our shepherd, you are our priest, you are our king, you are our brother, you are our friend, you are our Lord. We love you, Father. Thank you that you see us and you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.